Thank you for joining us today at BIB Today, the daily business podcast from the newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kurt LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief. On average, 3.9 million Canadians were watching television Monday night for the leaders' election debate. Some 9.64 Canadians tuned in at one point. There were 2.7 million digital views. 867,000 heard it on the radio, which is why these debates are considered important in the dynamic of a campaign. Do they make much of a difference, though? And did this one make much of a difference? And today for another chat is Mario Canseco. He's president of Research Co., a public research firm. He writes twice weekly for us here on his research at Glacier Media. Good to see you. Great to be here. In a close campaign like this, Mario, how, how much do these debates last week's in French, Monday's in English, tomorrow night's in French again. How much do they matter? Well, it's really about not breaking things if you're leading. I think in that sense, Justin Trudeau had a good debate. There was no situation that was going to propel people to go walk away from the liberals based on what he said. Uh, I think it's more uh, something that can help the, the other leaders grow. And we didn't see a lot of that. I think we had a couple of moments uh, that will be played extensively, especially because of social media. But it wasn't an opportunity to get to know them because of the format. I think that was definitely problematic, uh, having five different moderators, having six leaders, not really being able to discuss the things. And also a lot of uh, issues that weren't discussed at all, such as the opioid epidemic, transportation, um, issues that matter to the urban voters uh, were left out. So it was a it's really good that a lot of people showed up and watched it. uh, But it wasn't a very compelling exercise, in my view. When when you're. Research is being conducted about uh, these types, well, well of, of election campaigns in general. What are the what does the public want to see in a debate? Well, more than anything, it's an opportunity to look at specific policy pro- uh, ideas, and and I think that's the that's what was missing here. There weren't any questions related to okay, in your platform you're saying this thing. This is something that your party stands for. How do you feel about this? And then being able to discuss. And and it was mostly about the past. It was mostly about uh, the way in which the leaders have been doing certain things that they've done with their lives before they even became politicians. I think it was a little bit lost in, in, in the idea of actually being able to talk about policies, which is how these things originated in the 60s in the U.S. So the public does have this real appetite? For this kind of discussion. So so why is there then such a grand disconnection between what the public appears to want and yet what is performed for them in the course of the day? What do we have here in the way of a chasm? Well, I think part of the problem is uh, we haven't really figured out a format that is going to make sense for this. You know, we had discussions about whether we should only have three leaders or four leaders. Uh, we saw the reaction of, you know, why is the blog leader on stage if he doesn't really want to stay in Canada? Yeah. Why is Maxime Bernier there? And, you know, the first few minutes let us know that he wasn't really somebody who was happy to be there in that sense. Uh, I think it's more of a format issue. And and we've seen other debates, particularly provincially, that work in a better fashion where the moderators can interrupt, where they can say, okay, now you have a couple of minutes to talk about specific policies and ideas. And I don't think we saw all the five uh, moderators behave in the same way. I mean, I thought there were a couple that did better than others. Um, But you ultimately tune out when there's just a bunch of people talking over each other. Yeah. Let's let's talk a bit as well about who benefits from the large stage and who benefits when there's a small <laughs> stage. Uh, Justin Trudeau was, I mean, there were large blocks of time in the course of two hours where Justin Trudeau was not even heard, which is extraordinary 
Yes. And it, so, so is it in an incumbent's interest to do as few of these and to have as many people as possible on the stage? Absolutely. I think that's part of the argument for them to just have him discuss more looking into the camera, looking more prime ministerial. In a way, it's the Stephen Harper playbook. I'm going to talk to Canadians who are watching. I'll discuss a couple of things if I have to with the leaders who I disagree with. Uh, but I'm just going to focus on the job that I'm doing and let them you know, slog it out for the third place finish when it comes to the NDP and the Greens and you know, try to keep myself looking as somebody who they want to retain as their head of government. But isn't there a corollary in this one? Is that you, you can't afford to be too quiet, can you? Because uh, uh, ultimately, you have to appear to be rising above the fray and be the person that would be most trusted to run the country. Well, if the situation were different, if we had the liberals behind by a couple of points, I think that would have been the strategy. I think they're looking at it more as if it really hasn't broken after all of this criticism related to SNC-Lavalin, related to the blackface thing, um, we're still ahead by a couple of points, so let's not break anything and try to keep it simple. If we had a situation similar to the one Paul Martin faced in the second debate against Stephen Harper, uh, that told you everything you needed to know. In the opening message, Paul Martin said, Stephen Harper wants to form the government and we can't let him. It's a completely different situation than the one Justin Trudeau has right now. How do we uh, assess what Andrew Scheer was having to try to do on Monday because he'd had a, a pretty faulty French language debate, in part because of his lack of facility with the language, but also I think some of his messaging was was deemed to be a little bit off kilter. What what did he have to do on Monday night? Do you think? Well, I think uh, he came across as somebody who was very scripted a couple of times. Uh, the line about Justin Trudeau being a fake and a phony. It's actually borrowed from a Simpsons episode, which I also found very interesting. Uh, but it's not <laughs> he a loves situation. The he does love the Simpsons. Of course. Well, we saw it with the Dinger's comment after yeah. the first debate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's one of those things where um, you're trying to appeal to a voter who is more likely to move from the liberals to the conservatives. You're not going to have a lot of people going from green to the conservatives or from NDP to the conservatives. The people part is not a factor. I mean, they're at 2% with a 3% margin of error. Uh, it's not a situation where they're looking to retain that part of the coalition. So when you're at 2% with a 3% margin of error, does that mean that they actually have to give us votes? <laughs> they could be very, yeah, very low. Minus one? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's an issue for them. Um, I think it, and I said this before in this venue, you know, it, it's very difficult to run a campaign where every day you're hammering the government on ethical issues. And there is nothing that is particularly poignant about it. It's not the same way as it was for Harper with the sponsorship scandal. It's very difficult to say, you know, we are the ethical party who are going to do things differently. Everything's fine. Uh, we haven't heard a lot about specific ideas that they have. Uh, and I think that's definitely. So they're still the acting like opposition. Yeah. Not as you know the the government in in waiting. Um, can you see the frustration though with Andrew Shear about the, the the short memory spans that Canadians seem to have about these issues? <laughs> I mean, having to remind us about some of these things that only happened and that we're only galvanizing the public sphere a matter of days and some cases months ago. Well, I think it's a desperation that is based on the fact that they were doing so well just a few weeks ago. There was an opportunity. There were moments when they were a couple of points ahead. Things are going to be looking that better. Closing the deal is very difficult when you don't establish that emotional connection. And I think it's something that's happened to other leaders in the past. Uh, 
I think Carol James, for instance, faced something similar against Gordon Campbell back in 2009. There was mm-hmm. a moment when it seemed like this was the time when change was going to be happening because Gordon Campbell was being hammered by all of the decisions and all the things that happened. And if you don't establish that emotional connection that goes beyond the head of government is somebody you shouldn't trust, you're not going to win. In talking to New Democrats um, in the last number of months, of course, they were, uh, they, they've been forlorn. It's probably a, a weak word to use about how they felt about the state of their party under its leadership. And yet, uh, because of low expectations, Jagmeet Singh was deemed to have done extremely well on Monday. What kind of a material lift do you think this can give his campaign? Well, I keep hearing comparisons to Jack Layton in 2011, Mm. and I think they're unfair. Mm. Uh, It was mostly a situation where the progressive voter would have gone to the liberals under Ignatieff, went to Layton because Stephen Harper was the prime minister. Now it's a completely different situation. I don't see a lot of voters who are liberal and worried about the conservatives forming the next government suddenly looking at the NDP candidates as the, at, in the writing as candidates they would vote for. And in a way, it's similar to what happened to Layton in the first two campaigns. Uh, he always had the highest favorability ratings. People wanted to have a beer with him. Uh, would they give their vote to the NDP? No. And I think that's part of the problem. You, you can be the most well-liked leader and still finish in third place. And what, what Jagmeet Singh appears to also have cornered, though, is is a, um, a so-called millennial vote that, um, that actually is, is a little frustrated with the first term of the liberal government, with the promises that were made by Justin Trudeau. And I know people make a great deal about proportional representation, maybe more so than, than what we might deserve. But that was one commitment that, that Trudeau walked away from, didn't even give the country a chance to determine if it really wanted that or not in the way that, say, there was in British Columbia. So... Does does the NDP, though, gain out of this, at least on the basis of what he did on Monday night, an opportunity here in the next 10 days to take some of the disaffected young liberal vote and move it over? I think they have the best chance of doing it. Uh, we started this campaign with the notion of the Greens getting a lot of that environmentally friendly vote, uh, voters who are dissatisfied with the lack of electoral reform. Uh, and even in a campaign that featured Greta Thunberg's visit to North America, the Greens haven't done that well. It's going to be problematic for them to hold on to to the numbers that they have at this stage, because really? now it's yeah. become a matter of forming the next government. So I think ultimately for the NDP is, if this is a minority situation, if you have 20 or 24 seats that you can provide in order to have a sustainable government, what are you going to be asking for? Is it going to be pharmacare? Is it going to be electoral reform? Is it going to be something different? Yeah. Uh, you can be the kingmaker. Yeah, I, I want to talk a bit about this minority proposition here uh, very shortly, but I, I'd also, I don't want to leave this topic yet in terms of how the NDP then strategizes over the next 10 days. Does it begin to really talk openly about being part of a coalition government and, and begin to uh, compel voters to at least, if you're going to make choices between Greens and NDP, you've got to join the party that is actually going to have some clout. Absolutely. I think this is something that they desperately need to 
to start discussing because the election continues to be close. It's not a situation where you're heading into the final stages and you're saying, you know, send us more people. Yeah. Uh, we'll know how seriously they take this by the places that they visit. If they're going into areas where they're safe, where the candidates are very popular, we'll know that the situation is fine. But if they're trying to get a little bit more clout and try to hold on to as many seats as they can, which is not going to happen in Quebec, as we've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you need to make those seats somewhere else. It could be Ontario. It could be BC. Uh, especially if there's voters who are disenchanted with the way the liberals have been going. Uh, but it's a tough uh, um, balance uh, to be able to say something like this three, four days before the election and say, you know, we're hoping to be the number three party in order to implement some of these things. It's going to be very difficult for them, and it might actually turn off some of their votes. Right, if it appears as if they're too calculated in in what they uh, expect the outcome to be. All right, but l- let's, um, let's talk also, though, is there... Is there any window you think here for the conservatives around uh, being able to secure, basically secure power, or are we now looking at at almost a, uh, a, a without some kind of absolute surprise factor in this? Uh, you know, a, a marching toward perhaps enhanced conservative numbers more than their ninety nine that they got in twenty fifteen, but not nearly enough in order to to accept power. Well, the math helps them in specific areas. Uh, They'll do better in the Maritimes, where they got zero seats the last time around. Uh, The expectation was to do better in Quebec, but now that the bloc is doing, uh, certainly performing better than they were six, seven months ago, uh, that's out of the question. Ontario is a big battleground, but we've seen how Ontarians behave in elections. They choose progressive conservatives provincially, and then they vote for liberals federally. That has been consistent over this last century. Uh, and, and the other issue that they're having is the level of support in the national numbers is inflated by Alberta. You have yeah. 70% of Albertans saying, yes, this is how I'm going to vote. So that allows them to keep seats that they won with 57% of the vote. Now with 70% of the vote, it inflates the national numbers, but it's not going to work out in more seats. Yeah. So what is left? Because if we were translating seat totals today you would end up with what? You would end up with a liberal minority? Liberal minority at this yeah. stage, yeah. Uh, depending on how the NDP vote goes. And you know, conceivably, a situation where the NDP would support the liberals in, in a similar scenario than the one, like the one we have here in British Columbia, and just you know, keep it going for the next couple of years, and we'll figure out if it works or not. Uh, it's not clear whether the Greens are going to do well outside of BC. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's places in BC where the Conservatives could uh, rekindle. Uh, there's seats in in, um, in the Fraser Valley, for instance, where the Liberals did very well the last election. There's the North Shore, which is at play as well. So you could get three or four seats here in British Columbia. It's not going to get you to the majority territory, but no. you know at least Andrew Scheer will be able to say we did better than in the last campaign under Harper. And if it's a minority situation, we don't want to head into another leadership convention and, and give the liberals a couple of years to do as they please. Now, notwithstanding some kind of absolute uh, wild uh, French language debate on Thursday night <laughs> in which somehow you know, one, one party collapses, one party uh, becomes more prominent – um, let's talk a little bit about what the prospect of either um, a formal or an informal coalition looks like uh, after after all of this is done. Um, we're we're not alone as an organization. You know, we're starting to focus on the implication of of having a liberal and NDP 
um, agreement, if you wish to say it, but at, at least a, uh, an agreement not to topple the government in short order. Uh, what then do you think Canadians are looking for in the way of a priority? What would they support that these two parties between them have have promoted? Well, there's a couple of issues where they can find common ground. Pharmacare is definitely one of them. It's something that they both have discussed prominently. So Canadians really want it. Yes. And yeah. it's it's not a situation that is going to lead the conservatives to say we're, we're unhappy with something like this. If this is going to happen, by all means, let's do it. And it's reminiscent of what happened with Lester Pearson's minority in that sense. So you have a little bit of that uh, NDP focus. Um, 72 election uh, takes us to the birth of Petro-Canada. Oddly right. enough, because we were talking about revenues from natural resources and the American influence. I don't think we're going to get a national energy no. company out of this <laughs> coalition, just to say. yeah. But it's, it's one of those things that, that uh, you know, Pierre Trudeau resisted for a long time until he was forced to say yes to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, conceivably, a situation like that. Uh, electoral reform might be in the cards, uh, but I would caution about um, having a formal coalition per se. Uh, yeah. It destroyed the Liberal Democrats in the United Kingdom. They got everything they wanted, including Nick Clegg being deputy <laughs> prime minister under David Cameron. And in the next Whatever election, happened to those guys, by the yeah, way? Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> but but that's, that's my point. Uh, everything that went well in that coalition government was because of the conservatives. When people got to vote again, they voted conservative. They didn't vote Liberal Democrat. So uh, it's not in the Liberals nor the NDP's interest to get themselves too chummy in this? Yes. So unless, unless you're considering a merger, uh, which we talked about a yeah, few yeah. years ago. I mean, I don't think it's something that they would consider necessarily now. Um, but it's an opportunity for them to say, you know, we're going to be voting with the government on some things, on others we will not. Um, you can't really force the issue as the third party. If, I mean, if the NDP vote were collapsing then perhaps the notion of a merger makes some sense. But exactly. isn't this going to be the case where a few months ago we were talking about Jagmeet Singh as, as a leader who was not long for his job, now keeping his job and, if anything, perhaps being more prominent than anyone might have expected, uh, short of forming the government? Well, especially if the seat numbers are higher than what they were expecting just a few weeks ago. There are areas where they're very safe. There's places where they're not going to be losing those seats. But a lot of the uh, territory that they're defending right now is in Quebec, and it's not going to happen there. So you could have a few victories in BC, a few victories in the Maritimes, maybe. Uh, that'll be enough for him to say, give me another chance. You know, you gave me a party that was very heavily concentrated on one region of the country. We've made some inroads. If you take it back off the map and you look at the gains we had in other jurisdictions, then I should be the leader for the next uh, election. We we should uh, talk a little bit about the Greens in this one, in that Elizabeth May is, of course, by far the longest serving leader of her party. Uh, if she doesn't make great gains this time, given Look, just given the public discussion on the issues that are central to the Greens, do they have to look for another leader? I think it's definitely something that they would have to consider. Um, she's been there the longest. I think this was an opportunity for them to connect on the climate change issue in a way that they haven't been able to connect before. Uh, they're running a very uh, uh, convoluted campaign as far as the things that they're talking about. They're not really getting the sound bites that I think they were expecting. 
the reaction to specific situations that they faced has not been the best. I think it was misguided for a national leader to attend a rally from an independent candidate right. when you have a candidate from your party running in that riding. So it's been a bit that, wild. That had the feeling of, oh, I wish you were with us, yeah. didn't it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it sends a very sad message. You know, I have talked to candidates who want to run. I've polled for them. I've told them what I think they should be doing. And I think it's incredibly insulting for somebody to run for a party and to have your leader basically endorse the independent candidates who's running in your riding. I thought that was just completely, yeah. completely bad on the part of, of the leader of the Greens. Okay. Uh, and it's it's one of the problems. It's, you know, which which Greens are we getting? The the the, the ones that say our constitution uh, says that we have to run candidates everywhere. Uh, the ones that say we're going to whip votes if they're about reproductive rights. You know, it's just too confusing now. Um, so la- last uh, point, um, I was like um, among the many Canadians, I'm sure, who looked at that debate the other night and said, how on earth can we let these things go on the way they go on? Um, meaningful debate reform, though, depends on willing accomplices. The parties themselves have to be have to do. It. We can't we can't require them by law to to you know to debate ad nauseum. But surely there has to be something here that is in everyone's interest in order to get a better debate undergoing. What do you, what do you think might happen? Say next election? What I would say is uh, they require to look at debates in jurisdictions in Canada that have worked better than this one. Uh, There's opportunities. Municipal politics, provincial politics allows us the opportunity to look at how other jurisdictions have done this. And the problem is you're trying to please everybody. You need to have a representative from each of the networks and everybody has to be there and you want to bring as many parties as you want. But ultimately, uh, we spent a lot of time and effort, and I think that's what happened with the commission, uh, looking into how they were going to frame the debate and not enough time thinking about the issues that matter. Uh, I find it inconceivable that in, in our survey, uh, the number one issue facing British Columbia, which last time I checked was part of the country, even though it's not located in Toronto, it's housing. Mm-hmm. And there was not a single question about housing in the debate, right. not a single question about the opioid epidemic. So, um, you know, this is just another show out of Toronto uh, that the rest of Canada has to show up for. Unless they have representation from the regions when they're making these decisions, we're going to be having the same conversation in four years. Yeah, maybe even worse. Because it, what, what was also apparent was that uh, there was a lot of dissatisfaction, I think, among the principal leaders, that they didn't have enough time to talk to each other in all of it, that they were being blurred by it. Even though I mean, Justin Trudeau had a lot to lose, he, he expressed concern that he didn't have enough time. In a way, that could have hurt him pretty badly. It, yeah. it didn't appear to, but it could have hurt him quite badly uh, if, if he'd been muted the way that he was. Um, anyway, look, uh, we still got a couple of weeks to go. Uh, last, last point on this one. What, if anything exists in the way of a repertoire to overturn where this one is heading? What what ha- would have to happen, do you think, in order for us to get a different result than the one that would be there this afternoon? Well, I think uh, the essence now is uh, trying to establish uh, a very clear message of who you want as your prime minister. And uh, Andrew Scheer has tried to do this with ethics 
and has failed. Uh, it has to be about policy. It has to be about platforms. Uh, they'll talk a little bit more about boutique tax cuts, trying to get that middle-aged voter who is right now on the fence to look at the conservatives as an option they can live with because they have already lived with it. Is there a surprise idea out there any of these parties have that would lift their numbers? Is there is there anything that, you know, apart from $1,000 for every Canadian who votes for them kind of thing? You know? <laughs> well, it's it's really tough, particularly for the conservatives. I think the liberals will just try to discuss certain things, keep it simple. It's a campaign based on not breaking anything more, more than, you know, trying to put something nice together for the Canadians to, to look into and to vote for. Uh, I think the pressure is definitely on, on sheer. And this is not the campaign that they planned for. Uh, absolutely. I think they were expecting to be ahead. They were expecting to get to this debate in a situation where it becomes with a coming out party. With a wounded duck as yeah. a prime minister, a really wounded duck. And Didn't get up. It, they, they didn't get it. And it's it's going to be more difficult for them to try to appeal to the voters uh, when all of the socially conservative issues are coming back. Uh, every three or four questions, you get the question about abortion, you get the question about LGBT rights. Uh, that is not going to allow liberal voters from the last election to look at the conservatives in a much more positive light. Yeah. Well, okay. It's exciting enough still. It's still, I know we all think we know the outcome, but we'll, we will see. Anyway, Mario, always good to see you. My pleasure, Kirk. Thank you. Mario Canseco is president of Research Co. You've been listening to BIV Today. I'm Kirk LaPointe. Thanks a lot for listening.